I wanted to announce a new partnership between Coaching You and Inner Zone Sports. You know, for a long time, one of the intangibles by coaches and athletes is team chemistry. And it's a major factor all the time in whether a team has success or failure. When the folks from Interzone came to me at Coaching You and said, we can even help your team, I was all ears. And what we did is we took a quick assessment, two to four minutes each person, and we were stunned by what we found out about ourselves and our team. You owe it to yourself to find out what Interzone can do for your team. It's the simplest and fastest and most accurate software available to measure team chemistry. I highly recommend, without any reservation, the use of Interzone with your team, whether you're a middle school, high school, college, or professional team, to help take you to the next level. For further information, go to coachingyoulive.com slash Interzone. That's I-N-N-E-R-Z-O-N-E. Fast Model Sports is the world's most versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, FastDraw. FastDraw bridges the gap between whiteboarding and the digital world with an incredibly easy-to-use interface that can be used on both your computer and your iPad, providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. doesn't stop there. Along with FastDraw, they have other great programs such as FastScout, which I have used, which helps coaches create clean professional sky reports customized for your team. Fast Model is trusted and used by every NBA team and WNBA team and 85% of Division I college teams and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills for their online coaching community. For access... To these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Hey, welcome to another edition of Coaching You uh, with Brendan Sir. And I'll tell you, today is we're going to go off the beaten path of uh, basketball, but we're going to go into another area of coaching. Uh, one of my longtime friends from New Jersey, uh, Ian O'Connor, the great New York Times bestselling author, has come out with a book that has gone to number one on the list it called Belichick, the greatest coach ever in football. And I think it's just something that is absolutely uh, that you will find to be uh, the making of the greatest football coach of all time. And when he ta- when Ian talks about Belichick from his early days of coaching in Cleveland to New England and how it was a rough start and how he became what is now the greatest coach in, in a league that is just every year you'd see teams that win the Super Bowl not even make the playoffs. The consistency and measure of sustained excellence I think you'll find fascinating. So after this break, we'll come back with Ian O'Connor on Belichick. Hey, let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high-tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market today. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high-repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and to provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind of basketball shooting industry that enables coaches and players to stay connected, design and upload training exercises that combine shooting, conditioning, and ball handling into one complete workout, and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real-time adjustments and improved performance. It is without question the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. It's been the official shooting machine of Coaching You for the last two years. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to drdishbasketball.com or follow them on Twitter at drdishbball. Hey, welcome to another edition of Coaching You Podcast. And today, uh, fabulous friend and uh, 
it's it's so neat to see someone that I've known for years that now has a best-selling book, uh, Belichick. And uh, Ian O'Connor, our guest today. Ian, welcome so much to our podcast. Brendan, it's great to be with you. Thank you. You know, uh, both being from the same uh, neck of the woods in North Jersey, Bergen County, to be precise, uh, we've known each other since you started, and uh, I've loved your work. I love everything you do. I love your golf stuff. You know, I love, you know, your baseball with Jeter. I love the, the Belichick book now. I just loved when you were writing columns, you know, because you always had an insight. And one thing I, and I, and, you know, and I, I was blessed to work with, you know, Chuck Daly for years. And the great thing about Chuck that I can say, and different from, and I, and I say this respectfully, different than Coach Belichick from my observation, uh, is Chuck Daly absolutely loved the media. Absolutely loved them. And felt and he taught me uh after being in the league for you know 10 11 years he said brendan they have a job to do my job is to help them do their job well and that's the only person i've ever heard say it like that and that's why i think he was successful really at any stop because he never worried about it and uh you know i I look back at some of the things that he did some of the people that covered us you know, there were bad stories written about us, but, you know, he had a great saying, Brendan, make everything a one-day story. If a guy writes a bad story, that's his, that's his job. That's his opinion. Move on. Don't take it personal. And, I, and that's one of the few people I've ever seen do that. Wouldn't it be nice if every coach that you covered did that? Oh, Lord, wouldn't it be? Uh, but thanks for the, the kind words, and I know how much uh, respect that Chuck had for you and, and just how much you helped him get through season uh, on a consistent basis and you know i i think uh, being around i wasn't around chuck for many years but mm-hmm. a few and the thing i loved about his coaching style was he was not a a screamer he was not a berater he just had such a good human touch and i think that's so important i've always appreciated that in coaches on every level from high school on up and i personally always responded to coaches like that as opposed to those with the opposite approach. And and one thing about uh, Belichick that I think maybe a lot of fans around the country don't realize is he's not a screamer, he's not a berater in practice. Sometimes you can barely hear him. And in games, of course, he, he basically has a stoic sideline disposition. I think that Parcells, who was one of his uh, longtime bosses, obviously had the uh, the opposite approach. But but Belichick, uh, and, and it's one thing I always, uh, again, appreciated about Chuck Daly, is uh, they didn't coach with, with volume. And I think that uh, that's something that would probably surprise a lot of fans, particularly outside of New England, about Bill Belichick, that he can, he can really cut you in half with sarcasm in a team meeting or in a film room. And, and, and he would rebuke you, but... It wasn't with uh, volume and uh, personal insults at a, at a high decibel. I think that that's a part of his uh, coaching style that I really uh, admired from a distance. And the thing that Chuck was, was just, I don't know if I've ever in any sport, and I've covered, as you know, Brendan, everything, uh, but in any sport have I seen a, a coach more comfortable in his skin and who pushed human buttons any better than than chuck daly did and i think you you can uh uh, testify to that yeah i think that was you know i and again i came into my high school coach at fairlawn high school was ub brown the great ub brown you know and mike fratello was my best friend and mike played at hackensack as you know and hi and uh and the thing about uh when i went to work in it with the atlanta hawks with ub and mike I'm 27, 28 years old, and I don't know a damn thing about the NBA. I don't know anything. I don't know freaking rules. I don't know. I've seen probably 10 pro basketball games in my life. I don't know a thing. Never. I wanted to be a high school coach. And then they say, I know I never be, I've never been a high school coach. All I've been is college and pro coach. And so here I am sitting there with the incomparable UB Brown, who is my idol. And I am the furthest thing from him as a person, as a coach i don't act like him i don't talk i don't have the incredible teaching ability that he had he was a master at all and i remember before my first practice i'm scared to death and he walks up to me and he goes hey as you would say hey f and relax i said okay 
and I'm nervous still. And he says, don't try to be like me. Be yourself. It's good enough. It's good enough. And all of a sudden, that liberated me to be myself. And that's who Chuck was. He was himself, Ian. And the thing I loved about Chuck is he thought more like a player than players thought. He had this incredible instincts about him that I've never seen anyone in any sport just understand the player. And here's a guy that had, you know, Bloomsburg State College, you know, barely played college basketball, uh, you know, and and it was just he immediately he had a human connection like no other. So I always say that and I think this is one of the things that Billy Donovan and Doc Rivers, and, you know, different folks have told me about Belichick is that, you know, you got to win their heads and hearts first. Right, Ian, as a coach. And I think that's Absolutely. what Belichick does. And I think, uh, well, Chuck, of course, was the perfect coach for that dream team because of his his great ability to manage egos and, and, and be a crisis manager, not that he had many to deal with in, in Barcelona. But uh, Belichick, he didn't do it in Cleveland, Brendan. He, and he later admitted his failures on that human relations front in mm-hmm. Cleveland when he had the four losing seasons out of five. And he also admitted before that first Super Bowl victory over St. Louis as Patriots coach that he tried to be too much like Parcells in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the charisma and leadership personality to pull that off. But And I, I talked to so many Cleveland Browns uh, players for the book, and they said they never felt that Belichick cared about them as mm-hmm. people, even if he did. And I, I do believe he did, but he didn't show them that. And in New England, there was a player named Anthony Pleasant who was a defensive lineman in Cleveland with Bill and also in New England. So he saw both sides, and he said in 2001, that first championship season, there was a point where I realized that he did care about us, and and we didn't feel that in Cleveland. And I looked him in the eye, and I said to him, I want to win a championship for you. I could tell you that 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 line, that statement, came out of the fact that Belichick started easing up on players in practice and realizing that uh, the human body can only take so much of a pounding and also one-on-one in his office. And I think a lot of American football fans would be surprised by this today because you see that figure at the podium in his press conference and you wonder how, how in the world can this human being inspire anyone to do anything. But one-on-one in his office, he's really good. He's underrated. It's just not known. And so Anthony Pleasant said that to him in 2001. I want to win a championship for you. And that's the first time a player in the NFL probably said that to him or about him. And I think that's the change. And you see, outside of Brady, they've brought in such a, a revolving cast of players, cast-offs from other uh, organizations, free agent, veteran free agents who really didn't do much for their, their previous teams and coaches, and yet Belichick brings them in, and they become very significant role players and contributors. And here's a stat for you that I think you would appreciate mm-hmm. as a great coach yourself. The Super Bowl victory over Atlanta, which is the greatest Super Bowl comeback ever, ever. right? Yeah. Those, those last two scoring drives, one at the end of regulation, one in overtime, they totaled uh, 166 yards in 18 plays, the two of them put together. Seven New England Patriots touched the football in total on those two drives. None of those seven was drafted in the top 100 of his draft class. Three, three of the seven were undrafted. Uh, Julian Edelman was 232. Tom Brady was 199. James White was 130. Malcolm Mitchell was 112. Edelman, Hogan, and the center, David Andrews, were not drafted. So you see how Belichick, A, sees things and players that other coaches don't see in terms of acquisition and then player development. But a big part of that player development, it's not just the X's and O's, which he's a master at. It is behind the scenes, connecting with these guys on a human level. And I think he does it a lot better than than most fans and even people in the NFL realize. That's, that's amazing. They say his ability uh, to evaluate players, uh, you know, and I read, you know, gridiron genius, uh, you know, and the way that they developed a draft system back in Cleveland and then in New England uh, to evaluate players totally different than everyone else. Um, And I think, you know, and him as a head coach at the pro level, basketball and football, many of the front offices say, you coach, 
We'll pick the players. Don't worry about it. We'll give you a little input as a head coach, but don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. I think it's a very hard thing to do. Basketball's a little easier because there's less players involved, et cetera. But I think he being on top of everything in the NFL and knowing what he's doing, that's the key thing, knowing what the hell he's doing makes it totally, totally why the system works. Your feelings on that? Yeah, I agree with you, Brendan. And uh, <laughs> he knows everything about everything in the NFL, I'll tell you that. I had a very successful NFL head coach ask me not too long ago uh, where I attended college. And I said, uh, Mar- Marist College, uh, Rick Smith. So I was there with Rick Smith, uh, second yep. pick in the draft. Yep. Right? We were always very proud of that. Uh, it was a weak draft, but that's okay. Um, so I say, and I say, by the way, I played a year of Division Three football. I got hurt, stopped, played some lacrosse later on. And we actually have two guys in the NFL now. And that NFL head coach uh, asked me to name the, those two players, and, and I don't think he knew who those players were. And I remember walking away from that conversation saying, there is no way that Belichick doesn't know who those two guys are. And that they both attended Marist. He just... I yeah I really think that every NFL head coach works hard in long hours, sure. grueling hours. But nobody works harder than him in longer hours. And it's the attention to detail that is off the charts, even by NFL standards. It's practicing situational football more than every other NFL head coach. It's and every coach from Pop Warner on up talks about special teams being just as important as offense and defense. But he actually means it and he lives it and breathes it because his father did as a lifer assistant at the Naval Academy. And so all those things are, are part of the pieces to the puzzle of why I think he's the greatest coach ever. And I went to St. Cecilia High School in Englewood where Vince Lombardi coached, so it's hard for me to put anybody ahead of Lombardi. The nuns are going to kick your ass if they ever find you. If, that's... if they had a ruler, my <laughs> knuckles would be, it'd be over, right? Um, but I, I do put him there. I put Lombardi second. I would put Paul Brown third. Because if you look at the time and place, and this is a guy who wrote a column in 2000 saying that Belichick to New England was a bad hire, and that, that, that column has haunted me for 18 years, but he doing it at a time and place in the NFL where the whole thing is designed to prevent you from having a dynasty, from the, the cap, free agency, uh, the, the schedule, the draft, it's all designed to bring you back to the middle. And since 2001, he has absolutely raged against that successfully and they change and, and they I've- keep changing the rules also i found you know when we were with the pistons they changed the rules on us several times so we wouldn't have a dynasty and one to outlaw <laughs> physical play you know we used to be able to pick if you it, it, not to be you know but we used to be able to screen on a play that we used to run you could if the defensive player followed the offensive player out of bounds you were allowed to go out of bounds and screen the guy so when we ran this baseline screen for Dumars or Vinnie Johnson and Michael Jordan was chasing them and he was following them out of bounds. We Rick Mahorn just nailed his ass and put him into the stanchion and they changed the rules so you could never screen out of bounds anymore. And the rule is still in existence. Then they outlawed. Why, head why is the Why is the defensive player allowed to run out of bounds if you're not allowed to screen him out of bounds? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was happening is uh, he was pushing our guy out of bounds. Then he would get on their ass and follow him off the screen. And so we would just take the screen and put it out of bounds and knock him out. And right. and so they outlawed that. And then they outlawed hand checking. And so flagrant fouls were not a thing. Then they started ejecting players over flagrant fouls. And, you know, it changed the way the game was played and basically ended our dynasty. Uh, you know, because five straight years, we would have been in the finals. <laughs> uh, right. You should have had the extra title, too. You got that bad foul call. Terrible on foul. Year. It was seven yeah. seconds to go. So, I mean, it would have been three straight championships. Plus, we would have beat, kept beating Michael. And uh, But that's what happens. They keep changing rules sometimes. You can, you know, t- touch a player. Sometimes you can't knock down a quarterback. And this guy keeps, keeps coming up with the schemes to come around this. I think it's brilliant. I think it's freaking brilliant. But here's my question you, about him. Mm-hmm. This is the thing, you know, and I think this happens. Observation. Uh, when you work for a guy like Parcells, who's incredible, a legend, and now all of a sudden what I find with coaches, having studied the art of coaching as an you know, I hate to say it, but now that's my whole life is studying coaches of all sports to teach coaches how to coach better. And so all of a sudden I see this guy, most coaches will model themselves not to their personality, but after someone they worked for or played for. 
And so even though it's not them, so he was following Bill, as you said earlier, and coached the way he coached because that's what helped him win Super Bowls, but also that's what success looked like to him. But he goes to Cleveland, and then in his first year, in the guy can't win. Anyone nowadays that had the record he had, what would happen to him? Out of Cleveland? Out of Cleveland. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he gets fired. And, and never gets another job, right? Probably. Probably not, and particularly given that, Nowadays, uh, nowadays, I'm saying. Right, and, and when you looked at his press conferences, which were held against him, there were, there were people who sent Robert Kraft tapes of, of some of those press conferences saying, <laughs> do not hire this person, because it's not just the, the record, which, by the way, he did have that, that one good year in 94 with Nick Saban as his defensive coordinator, Brendan, where he, he goes 11-5, and five, and they beat Parcells and the Patriots in the playoffs before losing to Pittsburgh. Oh. And the following year, I think Sports Illustrated picked them to go to the Super Bowl. Wow. So... Yeah, and then it fell apart after the Art Modell announced the move to Baltimore. And Great the, move. The, uh, the locals, uh, <laughs> it was an uprising, and, and they just they, they had no chance after that. Sure. But, um, I think that uh, Belichick, yeah, he did try to be too much like Parcells, realized he couldn't pull it off. When he got a second chance, he, he became true to himself and realized that human relations was a much bigger part of the job. And, and focusing on big picture things instead of just the the micro focusing a little bit more on the macro delegating more and he just got a lot smarter he learned from his mistakes and people ask well when you look at his coaching tree it's it's not very impressive because of josh mcdaniels in denver mangini in new york and, and cleveland and a couple of other guys elsewhere and i do think those coaches particularly mcdaniels and mangini tried to be belichick Mm-hmm. And that's a natural thing, as you pointed out, when you come from a very successful system and that's what you've learned, it's hard not to take a lot of that or try to take a lot of that with you. The problem is you're not bringing Tom Brady with you to that job, and you're, and you're not Bill, and you don't have his credibility and his resume. And I think players, when they feel like, and you would know this better than I would, when they see or feel that you're not being genuine and authentic mm-hmm. and true to yourself, they're not going to play for you, and they're not going to win for you. And I think that's what happened to some of those coaches. I think you're 100%. It's almost like, and I, and I say this with great respect, because you know, having coached against Phil Jackson for years, I, he's terrific. But there's only one Phil Jackson. And right. Thank God, some would say. But you know, but he, he was such a <laughs> unique individual and stuff. But you know, I think along the way, every assistant that he had for him, whether it be Kurt Ramis or you know, Jimmy Clemens and guys like that, that then tried to go on to be a head coach and tried to be him and run his offense, because they didn't have Michael and Scotty you know, or Kobe and Shaq. And so therefore, right. you know, some things just don't transfer. You know, with now, you, you mentioned earlier how great Chuck was relating with players too, right? Yeah. And there was a, let me give you an example how Belichick did that in, in New England with a player, and it's a small example, but I think it says it, it speaks to big picture things. Um, there was a, a kid at uh, the Naval Academy named Kyle Eckel who was a fullback, special teams player, and. There was a report in the newspaper in the Boston Globe, uh, Bob Holler wrote uh, an accurate one, too, about his alcohol-fueled misbehavior at the Naval Academy. Okay, now, Navy means everything to the Belichick family. Sure. And Bill coming out of Annapolis, his dad coaching there forever as an assistant, a uh, revered scout, maybe the best advanced scout in America in college football at the time. And now here's this kid on the Patriots team, and I believe that was 2007, the best team Belichick ever had, and of course... Uh, at 18 and 0, they lose to the Giants in the Super Bowl. So this kid sees that story in the paper. He knows it's coming. So he, he he's barely on the roster to begin with. So now he shows up at work and he wants to avoid Belichick like the plague. He doesn't want to. See, he's afraid he's going to get cut on the spot. Mm-hmm. So he turns a corner and of course, who's basically the first person he sees at the facility is Belichick walking his way, and he's like, oh, "I'm done. Yeah, I just I I am cut. I'm out of here." And Belichick puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says, Kyle, his name's Kyle Eckel. He said, don't worry about it. I've had much worse things written about me, okay? Just relax. And, and wow. the kid said yeah. that that lifted such a burden off my shoulders that I could just imagine how things like that would impact really important players on this team at the top of the roster, never mind empowering me at the bottom of the roster to continue helping this team in the little ways that I do. So... 
Belichick does things like that all the time. And, yeah, we're focusing a lot on, on the Malcolm Butler benching last year in the Super Bowl and the issue with Brady, which was very real. But over the years, one reason, one ma- major reason why they've won five championships is that kind of, of anecdote that uh, is behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I have a big thing about coaches, uh, Ian, about the power of words. About You can say a sentence like he'd said to him, five words. Change person's life. That's how powerful the words that come out of coaches' mouths are, good and bad. And I, I think that's an example of what we can do when done and handled right. Talk about a couple of things. One was, and I think right now in coaching, we face a lot of abuse, physical abuse and verbal abuse from coaches to players. But talk about how Bill was abused as a player at Wesleyan uh, with what they did. I thought that was... that brought tears to my eyes about, and I, and I could see a guy like that, you know, what, what happened to him. Talk about that, uh, what happened to him in practice. Yeah, Brendan, it was uh, really uh, an unfortunate thing, and, and, and Bill never went to the athletic administration about it. But basically what happened was he was a sophomore at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Great academic great school, football. yeah. Uh, yeah, like an Ivy League level school, yep. basically. And he was a backup center. And uh, coaching staff or a member of the coaching staff sees that uh, they have an opportunity to block a point after attempt against the up- upcoming opponent. They think they see something on film. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, try to come up the middle and block a PAT in this upcoming game. So let's practice that. And the way to practice it is not to use the first-string center, but let's get the backup center, sort of use him as a guinea pig. And we're going to line up three people on the other side of him and blow him up in practice live, full contact, and Bill Belichick was that center, and they ran the play, I would say it was uh, estimated to me 10 to 12 times. And on the last attempt, his leg snapped. And it was basically three people blowing him up as after he snapped the ball. And he was so angry and disillusioned with the, the coaching staff, and particularly this one coach, and, and the sport. He walked away from it for more than a year, which is hard to believe that Belichick could – could not have football yep. in his life. And so uh, one, of his, uh, one of his teammates told me his father was a well-established uh, national figure in college football. He could have gotten his dad involved. They could have gotten that coach fired or gotten him in trouble, gone to the AD. And I spoke with the athletic director, and we're talking more than 40 years later, and he said, to this day, Bill has never mentioned that incident to me. And so I wrote about it, obviously, in the book. I talked to all of his, um, or many of his teammates who were on the field in that practice, his coaches, even the coach, Herb Kenny, who was the basketball coach, successful one at, at yeah, Wesleyan. I know her. And, yeah, yeah and he, you know, he, he said, yeah, it, it happened. And uh, he said, Bill was mad at me for a while, and, and then we got past it. But um, there were some uh, varying accounts of that. Uh, so um, I understand it was a different time and place in college football uh, back then. I remember even in high school football in the 80s, we went full contact all the time. And it's funny because when I look at an NFL practice today, Brendan, I, I feel like my high school practices were more physical than your average NFL practice sure. today. <laughs> yeah. It's just a whole different world. But it was a very uh, unnecessary and unfortunate thing that happened to him. And uh, he did come back to football his senior year. He didn't play much. But uh, I think that definitely left a mark on Bill. I think it probably has affected the way he coaches now, too, and the way he handles practices and things like that, and the way, uh, you know. How do you sustain excellence like he's done for so long? It's, it's amazing in, in the modern NFL that he's pulled it off. And I have to say that uh, a small part of it is AFC East incompetence over the years, yeah. that nobody's really developed a quarterback to challenge Brady. I think Chad Pennington was going to be that guy. Unfortunately, he got hurt. Yeah. And those three programs, Jets, Bills, Dolphins, have just, they, they, they can't get out of their own way. And, and that, that's part of it. But that's not Bill's problem. You, know, you can only play who they put in front of you. And they've taken on all comers around the conference and around the league and been very successful. I think... He, he did draft the greatest football player of all time. Now, what's interesting is in that draft, he picked six players ahead of Tom Brady, six people he thought were going to be better New England Patriots than the greatest player of all time. 
and those six combined for zero Pro Bowl appearances. So there's a little bit of luck there, but hey, he picked Brady and nobody else did. And I know that there, there was a giant scout named Whitey Walsh who was begging the Giants to take Brady in the fourth or fifth round before the Patriots got him in the sixth round, and the Giants didn't do it. So <laughs> history could have been a little different there <laughs> had that happened. As a Sam um, Bowie versus Michael Jordan, yeah, the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, I don't subtract that from sure. Belichick's legacy because, as you know, every great coach needs a great player, at least one, as the centerpiece of, of his or her program. Absolutely. And, you know, John Wooden, Lou Alcindor, and Bill Walton, right? And, mm-hmm. and so Red Auerbach with Russell and, and on and on. And, in fact, I think Chuck, who had obviously a great player in Isaiah Thomas, but you could argue that Chuck really didn't have a, uh, a player at that level where some other great coaches had, whether it be a Magic Johnson. And I don't know, like Isaiah is an all-time great, but he's not – as at that magic bird level, I would put him a half notch below. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, without a doubt. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, the thing I think Belichick would say is, uh, and football probably, football I think is the biggest, best team sport where you need, you know, the 11 offense, the 11 defenses, 11 special teams guys to all play as one. And basketball obviously would five guys that play both ways. But I think... The idea of getting the Mies to play like Wees is something that is at another level of coaching. And I think guys like him and Saban, which is so ironic, I think the two best pro and college coaches of all time, both were on the same staff. That, to me, is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, they they were in 94, and they led the league in points against uh, 204 points, if I remember correctly, by, by a wide margin. And the Saban-Belichick relationship in Cleveland was very interesting because Saban was frustrated that Bill wouldn't let him talk more to the media because he wanted to get his name out there for head coaching opportunities, <laughs> which is kind of funny given the – I don't see too many Alabama assistants holding press conferences. Like none of them, uh, none of them have ever – they've never – they don't even know who's on the staff except for Lane Kiffin <laughs> when he was there, right? And they got rid of him. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. But I think yeah, he, I think too he, high profile. Yeah, and I think he learned why you don't let assistants talk, you know, because they can say one thing to screw up everything. Not trying to, but it can happen, you know. Yeah, but you talked, didn't you? I remember yeah, you no, talking no, to Chuck. Because yeah. Chuck had total trust, and, you know, he taught us how to talk, you know. And he just, mm-hmm. you know, be be real, be authentic, you know. And, and, and this is not the enemy. And I think that's too much of what we do nowadays is that. And you see guys in press conferences blow up at the media or walk out in India indignation that you ask a tough question you know I, I you know we'll make news here but you know chuck was offered a nick job when riley left and would not take the job because you know the guy in charge of the knicks at the time who you know and i know said not the owner uh said no we don't want you talking to the media like and and if you and if you've been in the nba like that person had been that was what you were bringing to the organization you were bringing a strength where you were going to have the the toughest media in the world, you know, fall at your lap. You know, when we, when you, when we were coaching the Nets, uh, you know, when, in the old, uh, what was that, uh, the truck stop that we used to have to practice at? You know, uh, you know. Oh, the trucking. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. let's get the name. Is it North Bergen? Right? North Bergen. You know, we would practice yeah. over there. APA trucking, I think it was called. And right. and so we would practice, and there would be about 15 minutes to go and practice, and Chuck would say, hey, uh, finish up practice. I want to go out and talk to the guys. <laughs> you know, And he couldn't wait to go outside and talk to the great media. There would be nine guys covering him, and he just loved to banter with guys, you know. But I think that's the whole way of, you know, having having fun and appreciating another person's job, you know, and, but, uh, you know, think about uh, that. I read in a book that amazed me because of Chuck's relationship with our players and how that I can't even imagine working with Tom Brady, who everything is really pretty cool guy, I think, you know, and, you know, and a pro at the way he handles things. Uh, and not having dinner with him once in 18 years as a head coach. <laughs> that to me was like, I, I was like, are you kidding me? Talk about that. Yeah. Right. It's been a very transactional uh, partnership. And, and th- th- there's no love and warmth. And there hasn't been. But that's okay. The, that's okay. The respect okay. defines it. And I, I'm, Brady, I think, doesn't really need it. You know what's interesting? And, and last year their relationship unraveled for the first time. It, it's remarkable it took 17, 18 years for that sure. to happen. 
given that they're working in close quarters every day for that period of time under immense pressure to be the best ever at what they do. Each one of them, yeah. Right. But Brady, really, 23 consecutive years of tough coaching. But Lloyd Carr had him for five years and was really tough on Tom for five years at Michigan. So Brady's had such a long stretch of unforgiving coaching. He hasn't had a Pete Carroll or a Chuck Daly in there. Mm, good point. No, a Lloyd's <laughs> so, a good friend. I, I know. That, no, that's a, a good point. And, and he, yeah. he wrote me one of the, I think, the nicest letter a coach has ever written me. Uh, I'm a big Lloyd Carr fan. But me too. But Tom will tell you, he was, he was tough on Brady for five years. I mean, but that's, Brady, Brady yeah. started out as seventh string, and by the time he got the first string, they were trying to hand his job to Drew Henson. <laughs> who was the number one quarterback in the country coming right. out of high school. So so he dealt with 22, 23 years of, of just unrelenting coaching, and it got to him last year. And that was part of the reason for the fracture in their partnership. But here's the other thing, and I think you know this as a very successful NBA coach. The, the, the way Belichick coached Brady is one of the reasons they had five rings to begin with, because – I'll tell you a story that um, Dante Stallworth told me in 2007, their first team meeting. He's sitting next to Randy Moss. So it's Randy Moss's first team meeting as a Patriot. Wow. And, wow. and so, and so uh, Belichick is teeing off on Brady, not with volume, but just sarcasm and, and going off on him for mistakes he made in the previous year's AFC championship game loss to the Colts. This is what got us beat, Brady. And just saying things right in front of the entire team. And Moss and Stallworth look at each other. And, and again, it's their first meeting as, as Patriots. And, and they're like, oh, my God. If he's doing this to arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, the accountability in this organization is going to be off the charts for everyone. And it was. And the people at the bottom of the roster saw how accountable he made Brady. And it impacted all of them in a very positive, team-centric way. When you asked the question earlier, how do you sustain this for so long? Well, that's one of the major reasons. And so, yeah, it caught up to Brady and Belichick last year. But that's one of the reasons why they have five rings and other people don't. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Do you think the relationship last year was basically because of the trainer, his business partner, and his own trainer? You think that was, I think it was, yeah, yeah Alex yeah. Guerrero, that was Alex part Guerrero. of it. Certainly cutting, Belichick cut access to the team, some access um, that, he, that he had previously given to Alex Guerrero, who's Brady's life coach, fitness coach, and business partner. And so he was very upset about that. He was also worn down from all that, all those years of, of like I said, unrelenting coaching. But the, the Malcolm Butler benching in the Super Bowl really bothered Brady, according to my sources. And if you look at Danny Amendola's quotes uh, with Mike Reese of ESPN, that's how Brady felt, too, the vast majority of players on that team. And you saw guys in the offseason act out, for lack of a better expression, Gronk, Brady, and others, because they put up with Belichick's style of coaching for so many years because he, they knew he was the best coach in the league, and they knew that he put them in the best position to win more than any other coach in the NFL. But that Sunday, they felt by benching one of their best defensive players, he didn't do that. Therefore, we're going to respond. And the way they responded through social media and other avenues was basically to take shots at uh, Belichick. And mm. Brady responded by not showing up for voluntary work after 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL. 31 showed up for OTAs. The only one who didn't was Tom Brady. Yeah, you know, and... <sighs> You know, one of the rules in the NBA kind of, you know, not written, of course, and Chuck was a huge proponent, never piss off your best player on purpose type of thing and never leave scars on your best player. Uh, but one one of the things he also taught me was like, you know, if you had guy mispractice, if you had guy, uh, you know, do something, you know, that many teams might not suspend a guy, but bench a guy. Chuck was like, I'm never going to do anything to affect our team winning. I'll figure it out another way, but I'm not going to do that. I might find the guy or do something, but I'm not going to hurt our team's chances of winning because that's what we're here for. As a, as a person, and you've covered Riley and other guys, what do you think Malcolm But and, and no one wants to win more than Belichick. We know that. Right. You know, and it's the biggest game of the year. Uh, what do you think the guy could have done to make him do that? I actually think, Brendan, that it was largely strategic and understand that Malcolm Butler has admitted to ESPN that he had a, a bad week of practice. And it started by being sick and missing the team flight. So he starts out in the hole. 
and then he has a sluggish week of practice. And I really think that Belichick took that into account, and he looked at Philadelphia, and he said they've got these two big, strong, powerful running backs. Our defense stinks up front, frankly. They had suffered from a talent drain over the previous couple of seasons. Chandler Jones, Jamie Collins, Rob Ninkovich, Hightower got hurt. Mm -hmm. So they were really thin up front. I mean, Matt Patricia just sort of held that thing together. How they got to the Super Bowl with that defense that, is really beyond That's what me. I mean. I, I don't think they should have yeah. been there, and that's why you get no. to that game. Yeah, it's just Now, you remember, um, as, as a, a New Jersey, New York guy, uh, the Super Bowl that the Giants won against Buffalo in 1991, the Gulf yeah. War Super Bowl, right? They were big underdogs, and Belichick's game plan as Parcells' defensive coordinator was take the ball out of Jim Kelly's hands and put it in Thurman Thomas's hands, and let's, let's turn this fast-breaking, high-speed offense into a half-court Let's, let's drag them into a half-court game, mm-hmm. to put it in basketball terms, and that's what they did, and the Giants won the um, possession game. So <laughs> I, think, I think what Belichick did in this uh, Super yeah. Bowl against Philadelphia that didn't work was let's take the ball and put it in the quarterback's hands because I don't think Nick Foles can beat us through the air. Well, guess what? At halftime, it was clear that Nick Foles was prepared to do just that. And I think the mistake – Belichick's done a lot of unconventional things in big games – and most of them have worked. This one didn't work. And I think I give him the I would give him the the leeway to to make that call at the start of the game. He exactly. saw something. He knows his team better than everybody else. But I think where he deserves criticism is at halftime when it was clear the plan wasn't working. You have to go back to Malcolm Butler in the second half. And instead, he went to Batamosi, who had one of the biggest missed tackles of the game on third down on one of those Philly scoring drives. So. I don't really knock him for not starting Butler. Oh, no problem but, there, but, yeah. But I think the second half is really where he has to take That's That's what I wondered about, because I can see not starting a guy, having him miss half the reps, et cetera, but never putting him in the game. The, you know, uh, you know the, the thing about pro sports as opposed to college and high school is that it is a, the player's game, totally. And and that's the thing that you learn about it. If, if the players uh, ever feel... Uh, you know, it's gonna. It's about you, or you think it's about you. You might never win another game. Uh, I remember our friend Jack McCallum wanted to do a feature on Chuck when he was coaching the Magic because we had a horrible group. I mean, just uh, as far as talent. And and next thing you know, we're cha- we got the best record in the East with Miami and Indiana when when uh, that year in a shortened fifty game season. And all of a sudden, Jack says, oh, "Chuck, I'm coming down. I'm going to do a feature on you." Chuck says, "You're not doing a feature on me." There is no story to write. And, and he says, I will not meet with you. And, and he loves Jack. And, uh, and he just said, you, you, I have a nice thing going. It's just kids are doing a great job. It's their team. It has nothing to do with me. But that, you know, as a 69-year-old guy, he was so wise and just understood that it is about the players. And that's the thing that, uh, you know, that dichotomy of Belichick that makes him so fascinating is that he would allow that to come back in. Well, I'll say this about him overall over the years, Brendan, is, uh, A, he's turned down opportunities to make tens of millions of dollars mm. with endorsements, and he's never done it. And, and so in that context, he's never put himself above the team, where he could have turned himself into a John Madden-like juggernaut yeah. with a video game empire, whatever he wanted. Sure. He could have been doing commercials left and right for different entities, and he, he never did it. Um, so he never traded on his own credibility publicly and i think part of that inspiration in doing so was uh he didn't want to make it seem like he was bigger than than the team and he's preaching everything is team centric right yeah but if he if he turned himself into a endorsement superstar that would have maybe sent a, a contrary message to that uh and and also one thing that you see on nfl films and in other places, after big games, when players are thanking him after winning the Super Bowl, Edelman, coach, thank you for believing me, he always says, it's a player's game. Yeah. This is a player's league. And, and, and so I think he means it. Like, it seems so genuine when he says it. I do, that. too. Yeah. And, and when they had their most devastating, haunting defeat to the Giants in Super Bowl 42, blow the chance to go 19-0, go down as the greatest team ever, Belichick, and I have this scene in the book, walks into the locker room, and he walks into a locker room that is just a room full of broken men, devastated. They're going to be haunted forever by this yeah. singular defeat. And he, he only spoke for about two minutes, but players there told me he just blamed himself. He didn't try to drag in his assistants. He didn't try to 
assign some blame to the players as well. It was all about what I didn't do as the head coach. And it, it didn't last long, but he walked out, and Dante Stallworth told me that as he walked out, it was like he faded to black. And to me, that, that I, and I say this mm-hmm. in the book, it might have been his finest moment as a head coach. Yeah. He tried to get his players through that haunting, devastating moment and, by putting it on himself. That, and that's brilliance. That's brilliance in that respect. You, you've studied great coaches. How does he relate uh, in basketball terms to Pop, Riley, Phil Jackson from your observations? What, what, how does that, you know, comparisons, similarities, any observations you have? I think, Brendan, the closest comp is Popovich. Now, obviously, Popovich is very outspoken on social and political issues, and Bill isn't. Um, but I think in terms of the way they, they run their program and how Tim Duncan might have been treated the same way as the last guy on the roster, for the most part, with some differences, and I think Brady has been coached that way. And I imagine, I'll give you an example, like a, a guy who was in their camp for a little bit was a Division three player at Williams named Scott Farley, told me that maybe his second or early on in the camp he was in, he didn't end up making the team. He was a D3 player. He walked by uh, Tom Brady on the way to the cafeteria, and Brady said, hey, Scott, how's it going? Like that, I, I, I could see Tim Duncan doing that, and I'm sure he did it to players who were going to be camp players and not make the roster, just but making sure he knew who these people were and empowering them by saying hello in the hallway. And I think that comes from Popovich, and I think it comes from Belichick. So uh, I, I think that's the, the closest comp. I think the striving for brilliance and, and excellence and, and, and perfection, uh, Pat Riley, just being around him. I never covered – uh, Phil Jackson or Popovich mm-hmm. as a columnist in that market, but I did Pat Riley. And I think the intensity where every practice is a practice that must be won. Yeah. I think yeah. that that reminds me of Belichick where I talked to some Patriots for the book who told me they, they went to other teams in other cities and there would be a sloppy part of practice and they just moved on to the next part of practice by the schedule. And in New England, they said, there was no moving on to the next part of practice unless you won and perfected the part you were in at the time. Yeah. So, and I think Riley was very much like that. Very so much, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's where I see the comparison, even though two Riley had more public charisma, obviously. Um, but Bill has maintained that dynasty since 2001 without public charisma. That's amazing. And, that is yeah, absolutely amazing. Like Chuck, Chuck had charisma. And you can see it, right? He, he, yeah. he, he ro- yeah. rolled out of bed with it. Yep. Exactly. And Bill, Bill doesn't need it. And I think the way he is, and I, I talked to some of his friends and associates who want him to show some humanity at the podium, and he, and he doesn't do it. They would love for, for him to show the side of himself that they see in private as, as his friend. Sure. Um, but it's strategic. He wants to set that grim organizational tone for his players to follow. That is, we're not in the business of sharing information we're in the business of gathering it and so when you ask me questions i'm going to give you as little information as possible and my players are going to follow suit that is the strategic reason for acting the way he does in his news conferences on to cincinnati oh. right <laughs> <laughs> well i, I tell you, you it. Uh, it, this has been a phenomenal read for me and i you know you know, I loved the Jeter book, The Captain, and, and Arnie and Jack being, a, you know, living down in Florida for years and uh, being a big golf fan because of my son, uh, as I told you when you were doing this project, uh, you, know, you know, two guys that are incredible. And, you know, I think you just crushed this one. And I know last thing I want to ask you is this book, and I am amazed by that. I mean, coaches barely can get through a season. They're exhausted, you know, and rightly so. This season for you to write this book was three years of your life. Mm-hmm. What the hell was that like? I can't imagine. Three, yeah, three years of blood, sweat, and tears. And yeah. I think you remember uh, Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post, the columnist. Very, very uh, well, good guy. Yeah, yeah, very good guy, great writer. And he told me at the start of it, as I was debating whether or not to take it on. Took you a year really to decide, spend, right? Took you a yeah, year? Yeah, something like that. I don't know yeah. if it was a full year, but he said... Uh, do you, uh, do you really want to spend three years of your life living with Bill Belichick because that's what this project's going to be like? And I, I, that knocked me back a little bit. It, it took me another four or five weeks to say yes after hearing that. Uh, but 
It was, and I also have my day job at ESPN.com. So it was a <laughs> an absolute monster. I've never taken on a challenge that was anything close to this. It, it also, beyond being the most challenging thing I've ever done in 30 plus years in sports journalism, it was the most rewarding. Yeah. And he he put some obstacles in front of me. Um, he didn't cooperate. He asked some people close to him not to cooperate. But I think that those obstacles made me better, made me a better reporter. And and it's funny because that's what he does to his players, right? He puts obstacles in front of them to make them better. And I I felt almost at times like I was one of his players and I was trying to figure out how, to, how am I going to get this information and this anecdote and this story and get behind those Kremlin-like walls. And I do think in the end it made for a better book and it certainly made me a better reporter. Well, I'll tell you what, he'll never admit it. But he's re- reading this book, and he's probably read the damn thing already. And if not, he'll definitely finish it in the off season, and he'll smile to himself, never let anyone else know, and he'll say, "Son of a bitch, did a good job." And you know what? And that's and that's what it's all about. You're an authentic, well, great sports journalist. Yeah. yeah, thank you, brother, for doing this. This was fabulous. Well, yeah, thank you, uh, Brendan. It was my pleasure, and I just wanted him to see it as fair and exhaustive. Yeah, and. If he does, great. And if he doesn't, okay. No, I'll, he will. He that. will because he's he's super smart guy, and uh, and he knows you're a pro too, and that's the big thing. And uh, congratulations, this is great, and thanks for t- taking time. I know our coaches around the world are going to love listening to you know this podcast because coaching in co- is coaching in any sport. And thank that's you, right? For and great insights. I learned a lot. Yeah, thank I you, learned my... a lot from you, Brendan. Oh, thanks, Ian. I appreciate it, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Amazing insight. And, and I think the thing I love about Ian having, you know, had him cover my teams in the NBA for years is he is an expert journalist on coaching and all sports. And so he's seen Riley Popovich, Chuck Daly, you know, all the best coaches over years in many sports. Uh, and I think this gives him great insight. And, uh, you know, but to come and write a biography on someone with no cooperation the research, three years of doing it. Congratulations for your sustained excellency in O'Connor. Till next week, this is the coach, Brendan Sir. Hey, make sure you order your Coaching You videos, 15 videos, 10 NBA coaches, best content we've ever had, Go to 2018.coachingu.tv, $249 for 15 videos. Order today.